On today's episode of the 8-Bit Files, we're going to talk about probably the most popular 8-bit computer out there and also one of Dave's favorite things, the Commodore 64. I'm John. And I'm Dave. And let's get into it. The 8-Bit Files with Dave and John. All right, Dave. So as you know, from our previous episodes, I'm the Atari guy and you're the Commodore guy. And today's episode's all about your Commodore 64 experiences. Um, we're going to talk about sort of a little bit of the history. We're going to talk about some of the different models. We're going to talk about your crazy collection that you've been assembling uh, for the last number of years. And we're going to talk about some really cool things you can do with this technology even today. Awesome. Right on. So let me start out by holding up something that I have right here. I know for our podcast listeners, this isn't very good, but this is Commodore 64 serial number 37,042. Wow. Not bad. Um, so considering there were how many millions of these sold, I think the estimate is something like 17 to 22 million-ish units. Uh, I consider this to be, well, and from all accounts I've seen online, I'm pretty lucky to have one of these. They're extremely rare. Um, but so this is actually one of the first ones that rolled off the line in 1982, uh, which is the year that uh, the 64 was released. Uh, for myself, uh, I first discovered the 64 when I walked into a department store. I, I actually wanted a VIC-20. At least I thought I wanted a VIC-20. My parents were going to get me a computer for uh, for for my birthday. It would have been like my my 12th birthday, I guess, in 1983. And they just, and for some reason, the 64 had just come out and it was a lot more expensive than the VIC-20, but for, for in, in their wisdom, they, they shelled out the bigger bucks for the 64. And then, and then I fell in love after that. Do you remember how much it was back in the day? I believe it, it the, the, the machine itself retailed for about 500 US ish. Wow. My parents bought a package. Um, they bought me a package we bought it at a department store, just like you and you saw a lot of your stuff. Yeah. Um, it was Welcome the Bay Canada. department store. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the Bay department store of all things. Um, weird. Yeah, it was weird. And they would have had the kiosk, right? Like, you yep. know, of course. Uh, and they bought a package, which included the, 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 the bread bin Commodore 64. And we'll talk about the different models later. It included a Commodore branded desk. Okay. <laughs> so, so. This this was this so this became my desk in my bedroom that the computer was on, but it was a very basic desk. Um, yeah. Like very, it had a little Commodore logo. It had a, a single metal sort of flimsy drawer and a little spot to put either a disk drive or a tape drive above that, sort of underneath the tabletop. I but think I re remember that. Yeah. It, well, you know what? And actually, I was I almost bought someone. One, of course, one came up on you know, the local marketplace a couple of years ago, and I almost picked it up. But I thought to myself. Where the heck am I going to put that thing? <laughs> and it's really not very attractive. No, <laughs> right? But it came with also came with the tape drive. Um, the the so so I got my tape drive. I got my bread bin, Commodore sixty four, and this desk. Um, and it came with a bundle of software as well. Um, a bundle of Commodore branded tapes uh, with a bunch of different basic programs, some assembly programs, some basic games. You remember Lemonade Stand, John? Oh, absolutely. That was that was the probably the first game I ever played on a computer on an Apple II. That makes me happy to hear because it was the same game, the first game I ever played either. Um, yeah. Because it's only, and it probably took half hour to load off a tape. Um, <laughs> yes. Right? 
Um, and, and it was even a, it was almost an achievement to even get something to load, I guess, in, in general from tape. It would take so darn long. But so the, a lot of these programs on these cassettes were um, programs that were converted from the, either the PET or maybe in from the VIC-20 to the Commodore 64. So it was you could tell it was all in-house Commodore type stuff, little demos and things of that nature. But it would have been enough to keep me very occupied and busy and to really open up, you know, the world of what was possible. I mean, this was my first computer. I hadn't used one before. All my friends had Ataris and video games. And and <laughs> and I'm embarrassed to say that I even think I mentioned this on my LinkedIn profile, but I think it was just so embarrassing. <laughs> but I'm I'm really glad that I ended up getting a computer rather than an Atari back then because it certainly helped you know, set the career trajectory in place, uh, I would say. Yeah, th that was the same for me. Um, it, it, it's so funny how fundamental having a device like that at that age, mm -hmm. and, you know, I think things are different now, but I also know that giving a 10 or a 12 year old a Raspberry Pi or something else like that is also can be very fundamental in getting them into coding or computing mm -hmm. in general and that kind of stuff in a different way than just playing video games. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, back then, um, it was, it, I, I, you just got lost in the possibilities of what this thing could possibly do. In my mind, anyway, I thought that this Commodore 64 could could do anything and be anything. You didn't really understand the limitations of how much memory it had or what its sound chip was capable of doing and all those sorts of things. I just really believed that you could it, the, the, you could you could accomplish anything. And of course, and it was through you know the books and the magazines and all the type in programs. And you know, I'm sure we've covered this before, but I spent that first year probably of owning the computer because I didn't have a disk drive. Um, so a disk drive, we'll talk about disk drives in a bit, but I only had the tape drive, I had limited software. So it was I was really up to me and my own imagination to figure out what I could do with this computer. And and I'm really glad that that's the way I was introduced to it in hindsight, because it really created those fundamentals of learning how to break how to code, uh, learning a little bit about how computers work. And and it seemed like and it seemed like an eternity uh, to to live with a tape drive for an entire year, but I, I somehow managed to get through it, and with a bit of a silver lining, and that I learned a little bit along the way. Yeah, having those constraints of not having a floppy drive or not having network access or anything like that—that that definitely. I remember the joy of getting a new magazine. I'm like, oh goody, mm -hmm. I get to spend oh. three days typing this in. Absolutely. I mean, some of my fondest memories, <laughs> this is right, very nerdy childhood, yeah. um, but it was, I, I had a subscription to Compute Magazine, which yeah. you probably know, it was one of the magazines that covered all the different platforms of the day. Um, they later had Compute's Gazette, which was a specialty magazine just for the Commodore machines. But mm -hmm. uh, I had a, my parents bought me a subscription to Compute uh, in like around 83 or would have been 83 and the excitement of checking the mailbox right to see if that magazine was going to show up there was was magical <laughs> um, <laughs> and you'd turn every page of that magazine and you'd just be a i mean this was the only con this is the only way source of information right that we really had and those magazines had that little um the little card in the in the back and yes. you have to circle That's which right. which ads you were interested in they'd That's send right. you the brochure or catalog reader service cards yeah reader service cards <laughs> you yes got you got it and and i remember mailing several of those away um yeah. and 
and just getting pamphlets and brochures in return, but but probably thinking it was the coolest thing in the world um, to, to be able to do that. It definitely made me feel like a little bit different than most of my friends, like in, in, in the sense that, that, you know, I was doing these things and, and the other kids weren't. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, I felt more grown up mm-hmm. um, in, mm-hmm. in a weird way, and considering I was mostly worrying about gaming and stuff like that. Yeah. But, um, but it definitely figuring out that system at such a young age was really kind of cool. Yeah. No, absolutely. And the, the, one of the, the doors that this opened up for, for, you know, 13 year old Dave was um, attending meetings uh, of the local Commodore users group uh, in the small town I grew up in. Uh, There's a bunch of very nerdy guys, half of whom are probably not with us anymore, but um, a a community really of people, like-minded people uh, and I remember that also giving me a feeling of being grown up because as I recall, they invited me to be the youth representative on the executive of the board. <laughs> I mean, right. And junior president. Yes, exactly. The thing is I knew more than, than those guys did too. So they wanted me there just to, for knowledge transfer and things like that. But, but I remember really getting a kick out of that and creating some, some friendships um, I dragged even some of my own friends along to it, and I they, they probably teased the crap out of me um, afterwards because it was such a nerd fest. But guys would bring like the printouts of all the different like directory listings of their floppy disk collections and be <laughs> comparing and things like that. But I'm sure I would have done like demos, and I mean, you know, you and I have known each other quite a long time, and you know, we both over the years, course of our life, have done a lot of presenting and teaching and, and all that that kind of thing. Probably for me, that was when I got my first exposure to that as well. Um, and that was all really during that first year of owning this computer, like through that users group. Um, I think I was the newsletter editor. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway, it's amazing how much nerddom was condensed into that one year of my life. Um, <laughs> well, it, again, it's interesting how fundamental some of those life skills are when you don't even think about it. Now that I think about it, yeah, I mean, part of wanting to share that information that you're learning is and you know why we're doing this podcast is because we just want to talk about this stuff and that's a very important thing that some people never get to learn and are or are afraid of doing and to be able to do that when you're 10 or 12 or 13 or whatever is amazing It, it would have been really um confidence building probably for me at the time as well and something outside of my house that you know, didn't involve going to school or, or or whatever the case may be. So definitely a good time. When I imagine some of that user group was quite a lot older than you too. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that's when I first learned what a database was. I, there was a fellow um, who, he was an older gentleman, even at that time, who was actually happened to be a, 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 an acquaintance of my dad's through nothing to do with computers. Um, but I think they worked at the same place um, at one point in time. But I remember going to his home and he taught me, he used a database, a data space base, space base. I remember how he spelt it, <laughs> database um, on his Commodore 64 to keep track of his golf handicap, like his golf scores, basically. At that time, I mean, like how cool would that have been, right? Um, like yeah. to get that exposure. I mean, that was a neat little use case for a, a computer back then. But that was my first exposure to creating database entries and storing data and being able to index it and all that kind of thing. Um, that, and that, that was probably, a, you know, the fellows, he's he's no longer with us, uh, this gentleman, but I distinctly remember that being like a light bulb moment for me. I'm like, this is cool. I got to get more into this data stuff <laughs> and this database stuff. 
Mm -hmm. pretty, pretty nifty stuff. And, and then, um, and from there, it's it, 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 as soon as I got the disc drive. So actually just to pause there for a little bit, um, maybe talk a little bit about the different models of, of the Commodore 64, because it sort of ties into something that I was going to mention. So we talked about the original bread bin model that I have uh, got sitting in front of me. And why do they call it the bread bin model? Well, um, I think it's because it resembles, um, you know, those sort of, those sort of containers that you would store, like that have like maybe like a rolling top on it yeah. that you'd store a loaf of bread in. So it doesn't go stale. Yeah. Right. Does that sound right? Was <laughs> Does that, that make sense? Be, before I, they invented plastic bags? Exactly. That's right. <laughs> I don't even think they sliced the bread back then either. Um, but uh, I think that's why it's called, it resembles the shape of a bread bin. Um, I think and that's- And it's brown. And it's brown. And it's yeah. brown. And I could or be beige, totally, I guess. Yeah, bread and, and, and different shades thereof um, due to, you know, fading of the color over time. But so, so uh, of course, that bread bin design um, had sort of the full-size keyboard. And I have to say, it, it's remarkably uncomfortable to type on <laughs> the, the bread bin. I think I said that when we were talking about Atari versus Commodore, yeah. the the Atari keyboard is a joy. Um, yes. Behind me, I have an Atari 800, and I yeah. still think it's one of my favorite keyboards to type on. Yeah, and I remember thinking, because I was this is around the time I was learning how to touch type on a on a typewriter. Yeah, um, and I could not figure out how to do that on a Commodore 64 keyboard. Yes, because the, the, they're kind of squished. They're kind of uh, taller yep. and 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 That's narrower right. than a normal keyboard, whereas the Atari had like more of a traditional mechanical keyboard style. Yeah, nice That's and roomy, and 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 a, yeah. and a, and, a, and a more natural slope. The the yeah. sixty four had a very interesting yeah. lack of ergonomics. <laughs> yeah, you're you're totally right. When you talk about the slope of the keyboard, there's almost no slope. It feels yeah. like on the yeah. original. So um, you you kind of have to like hunch over like. That's you're, right. like like a really bad Dracula or something. <laughs> and that's how I learned to type was yeah. on that thing. And, and it didn't feel uncomfortable at the time, but now I can barely type on it today. Yeah. Um, so, so in between, so I'm going to talk about um, the, the, I guess the, the models that succeeded the bread bin, but as an aside, um, one of the very first Commodore 64 devices, machines I ever saw it may, I may have even, I have to check my dates on this, but I may have even seen it before ever seeing a bread bin was the Commodore SX64. That's the portable Commodore 64. Have you ever seen one of these things? Funny, now that you mentioned, I don't know if I have. So picture a, like a, like a suitcase or a briefcase, like literally like a big, massive, like right. Samsonite briefcase, you know, the one that they had like the elephant stomp on in the commercials like that. Yeah. In, yeah. Like the seventies. Yeah. Um, with a teeny like five inch or whatever it would have been um, CRT built yep, right in. And then a, a floppy, of course, a, with a floppy drive right inside the case as well. Right. And, and with a keyboard that actually acted as like a lid to the machine as well, that sort of latched onto it. So kind of like um, those original, was it Hayes or was it, I can't remember the name of the original, like one of the original portable computers, right. Osborne's. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Take your pick. Yeah, I, I yeah, can oh, picture okay. what you're talking about. Um, yeah, but it's an interesting to me, and it made interesting to delve a little bit more into the history of the SX64 and why it existed. But um, it, be, but it was such an early. I mean, it's, it's a pretty rare thing, I think, for there to they, for that to have been a thing, a portable machine, like to take a conventional machine like that and create a portable version of it. Um, it seemed like a pretty rare thing to do. And I, I and I believe they were targeting it towards like the business, um, you know, community. 
uh, and uh, as a as a you know something that you would take um, you know or like literally take it to meetings and things yeah. like that. Such a small screen though. Um, yeah. I I believe that you can get video out like your composite video out of it. Well, I should also say I had a chance to buy one of these things. Like they do come up from time to time. You're looking at about five anywhere from like five hundred to like a thousand bucks. I think depending on the condition that they're in. Um, that, so, that seems reasonable for some, cause you know, when, yeah. with Atari 2600 is going for hundreds of dollars, sometimes mm. yes. um, that seems pretty reasonable for assuming it's working. Um, it, and, and actually I could be a little low on my pricing, but I, yeah. there, there's the fellow, um, actually, uh, there was a short story. There was an opportunity to buy one, not that long ago. It might've even been in like the $700 range or something like that. And it was in very good condition. Hmm. Uh, what tends to happen with these things is uh, there's I, there's there's actually a cable that connects the the keyboard to to the machine. Apparently, that cable is very susceptible to to breaking, and they're right. pretty rare and hard to find because it's like a hinge almost. Right, yeah. right. Not on like a laptop screen going. It's just because it's been right open and closed right. too many. Yeah, times. the hinges themselves on or the the, the apparently like the, the the clasps or the I don't know exactly what to call them that 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 um, secure the lid the keyboard to the to the to yeah. the machine itself are very susceptible to breaking um and then the and then there's actually a coiled cable i believe that connects the two as well and both uh, of those things are apparently quite fl not flimsy but anyway that's the things that tend to fail on these things we don't we don't see a lot of coiled cables anymore do we not not as many we should though um yeah <laughs> i mean maybe on on headsets and stuff like that but right it's like audio point. headsets um that's a good but... point the, 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 um, so, so I remember seeing that machine in the store, um, running something that was, and, and a lot of old school Commodore guys will remember something called the Commodore Christmas demo. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and it's basically, it's a basic program that was provided by Commodore as a supposed to be a store, like an in-store display that would run on the machines that used, it really exploited the Commodore's strengths of sprite graphics and its its character graphics and its sound capabilities to create various Christmas songs and accompanying graphics, mm -hmm. um, sort of like a, basically like a, exactly what it says, like a demo. And I still every Christmas without fail fire it up and put it on because it's so um, it's so well done considering <laughs> that it was back. This would have been in the first year of the 64's existence. So I saw that demo running on the SX 64 in a store in my small town. And I, I just, I was mesmerized by it. Um, I just remember I have to get one of these things. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I never ended up getting the SX 64, maybe one day, uh, one day I will, but that demo is iconic and people it, listening out there will probably know. It, it's know. funny you mentioned that. Cause I, We'll, we'll talk more about it at the end of the show, but mm -hmm. when I got my FujiNet all set up, one of the mm -hmm. things that I found almost immediately was the robot demo that Atari did, which is very similar mm -hmm. in that it was showing off all of the capabilities of the device mm -hmm. uh, and meant really meant for display use in a store and that kind of stuff to help sell models. So yes. yeah, those, those demos are very uh, heartwarming to people that probably bought one because of it mm -hmm. or were just proud of the fact that their machine could do that because at the time being able to play christmas music and and show a christmas tree and yes. have it animated like that was magical it was like yeah it, it's hard to you know contextualize that in the age of computer graphics and marvel and everything else right now but um it's pretty cool that uh these companies had the foresight to do this for their retail experiences but also just just as a show off thing for yeah. uh, nerds like us. 
No, I, I'm sure that it sh that it sold uh, the Christmas demo sold Commodore 64s by the bushel. I think, and because at the end of the demo, you'd have um, an ad, basically an ad for for the 64, you know, listing <laughs> the features and the yeah. retail price even flashes at the bottom of the. So anyway, it was pretty neat, pretty neat stuff. So maybe I should have told that at the beginning of this podcast because that's <laughs> kind of the first time I ever saw, I think, a Commodore 64. But to talk about the models that succeeded the bread bin. Uh, so, well, really, there's only one model, I think, that succeeded the bread bin. That was the Commodore, um, the Commodore 64C, Commodore 64C, which is styled more like the Commodore 128, uh, right. which is very, which I have behind me. I have a 128 behind me. It's very sleek. It 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 it, it takes this bread bin non-ergonomics um, concept and it's a completely ergonomic. It's it's a spacious, roomy, properly sloped. The keys feel really good. I can sit down and type on this thing today and it probably feels just like your Atari. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it kind of looks like it was inspired by the Atari. It very much could have been. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have a 64C. I came close to getting my hands on one. Um, not too long ago, but I didn't want to, I had a friend who was going to pick one up for me out of town and I, I felt like I was pushing my luck <laughs> and it wasn't <laughs> going to work out. Maybe I'll get, I, I'd like to have one for the collection though. Um, mm -hmm. the 128 is very similar or in, but because, but still the, the 64 C would have been, uh, would have been really nice to have. And in terms of the computers themselves that succeeded the 64 you're talking about, uh, cause we talked about the pet sort of in, in, the, in the VIC-20 as the predecessors, the successors to the 64 would have been that 128 I just mentioned. Yeah. And, uh, and, and 128, not unlike the Commodore 64, yeah. is, is how much RAM it had. That's right. That's right. Um, the 128 um, has a couple of different modes to it. Um, so it'll either run in 128 mode, which is a completely different machine, actually. Yeah. Um, or it'll run in a pure 64 mode, which is 100% compatible Strictly right. speaking, I don't think it's actually a hundred percent, but it's very close. It's it's basically a Commodore sixty four inside of a one twenty eight, right? Uh, with a little sort of flip of a switch. Um, but the neat thing about um, I know we're going in all kinds of different tangents, but I could talk all day <laughs> about this stuff. The neat thing about the having a one twenty eight is some sixty four software will run in an enhanced mode to take advantage of the faster CPU and more memory that the one twenty eight had. So there was a version. Um, and this will Nintendo won't like us talking about this, but there is a version of the um, of Super Mario Brothers, the iconic uh, game uh, that uh, somebody uh, developed as homebrew for the Commodore 64. So it's actually an exact replica of that the complete game, which is, is an amazing feat. Um, on the Commodore 64. And that's a recent. Home it's program. recent. We're talking yeah. about within the last five years um, yeah. that was developed and, and released. And it runs on a stock Commodore 64. We, and I mean, you know, it's better than I do how much movement there is going on in that game at any given time. Um, you're going to you're going to hit the limitations of the of the of the Commodore 64 very easily. So a lot of programming tricks and things like that were done to to sort of, you know, make it work. But the neat thing about it is when you run it in on a Commodore 128 in 64 mode, it it actually runs faster and it runs better because of, so and there's there, there are there are a few other, you know, recent games and, and other software that does that, too. What what strikes me is how how much these uh manufacturers were able to cram into mm -hmm. 64 yeah. kilobytes yep like the photo i take on my iphone is infinitely right. higher than that that's right 
So, right. but, but some of these, some of these programs and games and stuff are just amazing. I mean, a lot of it's done in assembly language and um, like it's, it's all, it's not all, it's not basic. It's, it's, it's definitely That's a more right. advanced. Um, That's right. Programming language. Yeah. And, yes. And, and then, you know, these, these uh, homebrews now, they have the benefit of more modern tools to help exactly. code in those things or at least convert import things. But um, it, it's, it now thinking back about it, like, it's just amazing how much got crammed into these very it tiny is. games. And when you look at your entire Commodore 64 library of every program ever published and how, you know, it's less than, you know, an album in MP3 format. Yes, absolutely. So, absolutely. No, it's, it is, it is sort of mind blowing. Um, that's the case. And then through, as you know, different programming techniques and, and over time, People have discovered new ways to, you know, manage memory and just sort of ways to use the the architecture of these machines more efficiently. And I imagine that, you know, with every game that gets developed, those techniques just get refined and refined and refined uh, over time. And that leads us to things like the Super Mario Brothers yeah. uh, accomplishment, which which is really quite a, quite a. I, I do recommend sort of checking that out. The only challenge is that the old Commodore uh, controller joysticks only supported one button, right? Right. So to jump, uh, you use up on the joystick, um, right? Instead yeah. of having the two buttons that we're so used to in that game. So you almost have to relearn <laughs> a little bit about how to play it, but it's still yeah. pretty, pretty freaking amazing. Uh, if I do say so myself. Um, so, so what, what, else, what else, let's talk about, or is there more like models? Let's, let's talk about um, on your bread bin. Yes. What kind of I/O do you have in input output? Like, right. You've got joystick ports. You betcha. You got two DB9 joystick ports um, on one side, which is standard for an Atari as well. Pretty standard. And the 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 the, the thing that Commodore 64 users um, know very well is that by default, a lot most games actually require the joystick to be plugged into port two as opposed to port one of the joystick port. And there are specific technical reasons for that, but it's it's actually, that was always the test. Is this a port one or a port two game? <laughs> and, and it was always really annoying, but uh, that's just one of the things uh, things that goes along with that. So then you had a, a user port uh, in the back for peripherals like modems, um, your peripherals like modems, other other add-ons, printers, and things of that nature. You had a cassette port dedicated to connecting your cassette, uh, <laughs> your cassette uh, deck to. You've got uh, the video uh, and audio um, come out through a single port, which requires a proprietary cable um, mm. to connect to to device. You've got your um, your uh, S uh, your your IEC port, which is your I main I/O port for for disk drives and uh, and storage devices. And you've got your RF out for connecting to old TVs. And you've got your channel, the famous, I believe that's a channel three or four uh, switch um, for, for those inclined. Or two and three? Yeah, or two, yeah, two and three. It'd be, be yeah. two and three. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's all the ports pretty much. But but so that's so that's uh, that, that's the ports as we knew them back in the day. Yeah. Um, but now, of course, uh, and so let's talk a bit about the devices that we would have connected up to these machines back then. Yeah. It was pretty limited. Uh, yeah. You had your your disk drive, your fifteen forty one disk drive, which was the most common disk drive. I've I've got a closet full of them, actually, John. <laughs> like, and the thing is, I'm not like it. It it's it's almost like because when you, to me, there's no value in the disk drives, like other than the fact that 
I don't want them to go in the garbage can. Like I don't yeah. use them. Yeah. I'd like to have one or two working ones for, for when I need them. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of, actually a lot of the components inside the 1541, the 1541 is as big and as heavy as the bread bin itself. But yeah. uh, on the board, there are a lot of the same chips and things like that, that the actual 64 uses um, uh, as, as well. So it's actually got a lot of processing going on, right? I mean, I guess that's not a big surprise, but with the, with, uh, with, on, on the uh, 1541, mm-hmm. I know on the Atari 1050 that I have, mm-hmm. yep. there, there was a big, <laughs> let's call it a community of people that installed uh, copyright protection surpassing devices. Right. Right within and, the drive itself. Yeah. So there would be a switch on the front that lets you bypass the copyright protection and stuff right. like that. Was that something common for the Commodore? It, it, I don't recall anything. There probably were a few things, but there were so many copy protection schemes in, in, in that day. So, and they were all different. And yeah. I think what tended to happen is you'd, you'd like the software itself would be cracked. And then, yeah. you, and then the cracked version would just be released. So yeah. in terms of bypassing protection on original games, I don't remember that being a big thing. But I, I, I just remember on the Atari, at least, there mm-hmm. was, you would have a like a, a game disc mm-hmm. and there would be, basically, it would try to read a, a certain sector yes. on the drive. And if, yep. it, if it had an error, then it knew that you were, playing with exactly. the le- legitimate thing and the thing is in reading that error it would grind that's right and i make this awful noise i can still hear it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and that killed um so 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 we did have that same problem on the 64 yeah. as well or on the 1541 and that is actually what this was i, I probably told the story before but um the my original 1541 that i waited a year to get finally mm-hmm. got it I think around probably half a year later, the drive head failed or it was out of yeah. alignment. Yeah. And it was because of that copy protection on some of the games that yeah. we had. And I had to send the drive away and it had to get fixed. And it took like two months and it was like the saddest. That's day like ever. an eternity. Yeah. Oh, back then it was. I still remember being like really down in the dumps about it back then, <laughs> 30, uh, 40, 40 years ago, John. Amazing. That's scary just to say that. I know. Um, so I had a 1541 um, and when, so we talked about in our BBS episode, which I highly recommend listening to uh, folks uh, in our BBS episode, we talked about our BBS stories. And I don't know if I mentioned this one or not, but every, so I, I think I ran my BBS from, from seven till 10 PM every Tuesday and Thursday or something like that. <laughs> right. But well, actually it was more frequent than that, but, but, Every like once a week, I would borrow a second floppy drive from a friend so that I could expand the capabilities or the offerings of my BBS. So yes. I could offer file downloads actually was actually the thing like yeah. one day a week for two hours or something. Yeah. Um, right. So I'd literally like, go across town, get my disk drive, my friend. I mean, I don't know how long I did that for, but <laughs> I mean, but they were expensive too. like these, uh, these, these drives. They cost almost as much as the bread bin, if I recall. I, I I have in my head that my 1050 back in the day cost like three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Big and ticket item, huge. And mm-hmm. I couldn't afford it as a ten or twelve year old. So that's when I worked at the Atari store to pay it off. Right. And I remember each peripheral basically costing like kind of a round number of like five hundred bucks, like like or, or in that neighborhood, maybe it's three hundred or four hundred. But um, so you know, I got 
I got the monitor, color monitor, 1702. So let's talk. The famous 1702. Just before you switch to the 1702, I recently started looking at some of the old computer magazines from Mm -hmm. the era. And I've, there's this, there's a couple for the Atari specifically analog and antique magazine. I think one of them was all platforms. Anyways, there's a lot of ads. Yes. And I remember, I remember distinctly seeing recently, Mm -hmm. and I think these were like 1985, 1986 editions. And the Atari was like $79, $89. Right. For the 800 XL, the, the, the 1050 the, the the floppy drive was almost double that jeepers <laughs> yeah like like it, you know and that's us dollars in a us magazine so yeah I, and i think that yeah. was towards the end of the life of the atari stuff um or at least it had been out for a while so the prices were lower um i'm, I'm still shocked at the prices we would have paid and yes. the, you know the adjusted prices today yeah. um I don't think they're quite as comparable. Yeah. I mean, buy a MacBook, it's like at least a thousand dollars, right? Yeah. yeah. But I don't know if that quite translates. And the technology at the time was pretty bleeding edge uh, for what you could do. And you didn't really need a lot because you could plug it into your TV or you could plug it into a monitor. Like you didn't yeah. have to have all the expensive accessories. You could just use it by itself on a TV. Yes. Yes. No, but, it's... but the, you know, the 1702 monitor, uh, is ubiquitous and it's mm-hmm. extremely popular today. I recently sold mine um, and I kind of regret it now, um, now that I've gotten back into all this stuff because mine was working fine and I had it from back in the day and I, yeah. but I sold it for 200 bucks. Well, you know, I wouldn't, you can still pick one up if you wanted to, I think yeah. around that price. They're, they're fairly ubiquitous. Uh, yeah. Well, people kept them uh, because they had such a, like I actually kept my original 1702 long after I got rid of my 64. So one thing I remember I, I ended up trading, I ended up trading my 1702 like in like the early nineties to a friend for like a, a 386 PC that I could use to run some of my bulletin board stuff on like my, <laughs> my second bullet. So it all kind of comes full circle, but yeah. So I did reacquire the 1702, a 1702 a couple of years ago. And it's really one of my prized possessions, I would say, because it the picture quality as you know it's so good um yeah and it like my atari 2600 just looks so beautiful on it well and not to mention the 64 so that monitor as you might recall it has front and rear inputs on it um the front input um on the 1702 is just composite in which is what most people would use yeah. the rear input actually has chroma luma separation uh separated inputs which is basically s video that yeah. has been Put out into like individual R- like phono plugs. Yeah, RCA plugs. Yeah, yeah, RCA plugs. And um, the Atari was the same. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I I found in in my garage I found one of those cables. Oh, that, nice. That uh, is nice. Uh, the breakout cable. Right Again, on. be very useful now if I still yes. have the seventeen oh two. Right. Well, the picture quality uh, um, that you get out of the bread bin or of of the sixty of of, of the Commodore machines using that hope that chroma luma is really impressive like it's yeah. really nice it's a beautiful beautiful output it it's it, and, and it still looks nice beautiful t- today i i just love lo- looking at it that that crt uh look um it's just it's just beautiful yeah it's interesting because i spent a lot of time looking at these retro systems on an lcd monitor yeah 
you know, whether it's through emulation or actually having a hardware plugged in. Yeah. And and then I, I I dug out this TV that I had in my garage, this little 13-inch CRT with a little game input on the front. Yeah. And it really does highlight how good this stuff can look on a on a good CRT monitor. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, just something about CRT look, right? It's just so yeah, beautiful. I mean, it's 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 almost always curved, yep. you know, in some way. Yep. You can see the pixels, um, mm-hmm. but they're kind of a little blurry still. So that's right. That's it's right. kind of smooth nicely. Yeah. Um, and then when you look at it on an LCE screen, it it's almost too much. Yeah. And most of most of the emulators and stuff like that, you have different modes and you can so actually... many different modes, right? That yeah. And I can never settle on one that I like. <laughs> it's one of my problems. Well, it almost depends on a like it's almost on a per game basis. That's true. Whether a scan line's useful in this one or not, or yeah, different true. filtering effects. Um very, very true. Do you get back because we're gonna run out of hard disk space for the recording of this if I don't move on? Because <laughs> you know I could just keep going. Yeah. Um I just want to cover off because for for the purists out there that are looking for academic completion as a you know comprehensive library of all the Commodore hardware, we're we're obviously skipping over a lot. I'm just hitting the highlights here, yeah, like with the 1541. But uh, the 1571 was kind of the successor to the 1541. That's the that's the drive that came out, I believe, with the 64C and the 128 with that sort of that sort of last generation of of these machines or of this machine. And I believe the 1571 is a du- double-sided. It can read both sides of the disc without flipping the disc over, oh. if I recall correctly. I, I think cool. so. I think so. I have one, actually, a 1571. They seem to be pretty rare. 1541s come up all the freaking time. But yeah. 1571s are pretty, pretty hard to find, um, I've found. I just managed to, to, to get one of those. Um, I'm just going <laughs> to keep going, but just, just talk about the old hardware. Uh, that or, or some of the other old hardware that I had when I was a kid. Um, there was uh, Commodore had a, a line of printers. Uh, one of them, uh, well, actually, the, the one that I had, I guess, was the MPS 801 printer, which was a fairly like a relatively low cost printer, I believe in the day, because to buy like a pure Epson or whatever, it would have been like one of those would have been more expensive printers would have been a cost a lot more than these Commodore printers. I think they were fairly affordable. But one of the ways that they cut corners on the cost of the MPS 801 was uh, certain characters, like say a lowercase g, um, you know how the the, 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 the the tail of the G has to descend like below yep. the, the threshold? It yep. actually would print that, that character above the threshold. Yeah. So th- creating a very, you know, unique look to, you know, grade eight Dave's like social studies paper that he submitted from his computer. <laughs> so my teacher would circle the G's, say, how come these are all capitalized? And then I have to explain to my, my teacher what descenders, because they're called descenders, these characters. Yeah. Um, so I had to explain to her what that was and the reason, no, no, it's actually correct. It's just, this is the way my printer prints these things, right? <laughs> this is my cheap printer. Exactly. My parents cheaped out on the printer, but I'm sure in their minds, they weren't cheap it out. But no, no, it's um, <laughs> probably still a lot of money. It probably was. But I, anyway, uh, so that's the MPS 801. And there's a lot of other printers, not going to talk about them. Finally, the other, probably one of the few things that I don't have today that I want to reacquire is the original, there was a mouse for the Commodore uh, machines, the 1351 mouse, which had the DB9 connector. 
yeah, that was pretty rare. Or, or they're still, I think, relatively rare. You don't see them very often. I've seen one or two come up in some people's collections, but I, I really, really want one of those. I had one too back in the day. The only reason I know that I had one is because I have a a, a video that was that a relative took at my house in like 1987. They were just walking on a tour of my family house and they walked into my bedroom and took like, so they're panning across my computer stuff. So to me, <laughs> seeing that now, it's like gold, right? Because I don't yeah. have any pictures of that stuff back in the day. Yeah. So I'm zooming and pausing, you know, the, you know skipping the frames, scrubbing the computer enhanced computer. Exactly. Enhanced. Yeah. AI uh, <laughs> enhanced uh, this. And I saw like a, a mouse sitting there, the 1350. I didn't even remember having it to be honest with you, but man, that's one of the things I wish I wish I still had. Did the Commodore have any light pens? Yes. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Uh, I, I think I had one too, like a cheap one. Now, would a light pen have required the pad, like the Koala pad or something to go along with it? Or the light, no, the light pen is for touching the screen, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. typically for like illustration, yes, drawing apps and, and stuff like that. I don't think there was any games or anything that really took advantage of it, but. You know, I'm sure I had one of those actually, now that you mentioned it. Yeah. I remember making one in like an electronics class because mm-hmm. it was such a basic circuit. Like it's right. literally an right. LED and, and a DB nine connector. Like it's, there's not a lot right. to it. Right. Um, and I remember building one and like duct or not duct taping, electrical taping it all together. And it actually worked. Yes. Um, that's for my Atari. Pretty, cool. pretty, pretty darn cool. Can you make me a homemade uh, Nintendo flash flasher or what are the, the gun like for, for duck hunt? Can you make me one of those? <laughs> well, I, I have one if you want. <laughs> I'm not surprised. You only have one. I'm surprised. I only I'm have, shocked. well, I might have, a, I might have a couple. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think that covers the hardware that I had for the 64 when I was a kid. Um, so, so let's go, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, let's talk about the hardware you have now, now as an adult. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, as I said, I got a closet full of flop of 1541s. I could actually, I could probably sell six 1541s and still have like six left. So I got lots of those, <laughs> but yeah, in terms of current hardware. So there are lots of different um, modern hardware devices, just like the Atari 8-bit machines. There, there are a lot of different types of, of devices to, to, to give new functionality. So you've got your SD card solutions. We talked a lot about those in our you know, multi-card slash SD card uh, podcast episode. Mm-hmm. Um, the SD to IEC is the, probably the cheapest and maybe the, the most accessible and easiest one. Refer to that episode for more information on that. We, we talked all about that then, but it basically emulates the floppy drive. Um, and for, so you can load programs, uh, you know, much easier off of an SD card. Uh, but there are some, in, in terms of hard, other hardware uh, that I have, um, I have... Um, something that we talked about in one of our earlier episodes called the WIC 64, which is basically a wireless modem uh, device that gives the Commodore 64 wireless or sort of internet connectivity capabilities, similar to the FujiNet in some ways that John, I think we're going to talk about a little bit at the end of this episode, yep. which I'm excited about hearing more about. But it really, it, it, it basically, it's a, it's a device that, you know, you, you, you connect it to the user port of your machine. Uh, it has its own, you know, PCB and 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 chipset and all that kind of stuff where it'll connect to your your local Wi-Fi network and basically just open up a whole world of of things and relatively inexpensive as well. You can connect to BBSs using these devices. Um, and uh, we'll be doing a video on the WIC64 very soon on our YouTube channel because um, I really want to dive uh, a, a little bit more into that. 
Um, and there are also the multi-cart solutions. Uh, one of my favorites is the Kung Fu Flash, which we talked about, which basically just instantaneously loads games and software, again, without a floppy drive. And it's just really, really fast and, and really, really cool uh, as well. So I, I think that's, and, and there are all kinds of other um, more innovative, not more innovative, but uh, other devices, uh, higher end devices, or something called the Ultimate 64 which is an FPGA based, um, it's actually, that's more of a replica of the existing 64, but FPGA based with enhanced features and compatibilities. That's not something that you would integrate with your existing machine, but it's something that you would use to, to, to emulate or the machine, but still a very, very cool device. And yeah, they're just, I could go on and on about uh, the modern hardware. There's also a version of the FujiNet um, again, which we're going to talk about or being developed, I believe, for, for yep. the Commodore 64, which is, again, that's going to be a must-have uh, device, I think, once it uh, mm -hmm. once it becomes available. I'll be all over that. Did um, did Commodore have their own line of joysticks? <laughs> yes, they did, indeed. Um, it's funny, I, 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 I've got one. I've got two of them, actually. For a short time, they released basically an exact replica of the old Atari CX. Help me out here. Um, CX, what is the Atari joystick? 30, CX, 30, 30 or 80? Right? Or 50, you, you, you know, the iconic, exactly. I think it's a 30, right? The, yeah. the iconic Atari joystick. They released a white version, a, a white in color version of oh, that. I joystick. remember that now. Yeah. And apparently, I don't know the whole story, but they were sued or Atari. Like, I, I don't like, they just, just outright copied the design, yeah. um, is my understanding. So they replaced that design with. This, it's like they just took that joystick and just said, we're just going to modify it and we're going to make it look nothing like the original, but kind of resemble it, but we're going to make it completely unusable. Um, <laughs> so, so the bat, like the stick itself is actually a triangular shape. Um, and the button is this, is this, is a button, right? Sort of a, an, like an oval kind of a pill shaped button at the top of the joystick. So it's, it kind of looks and feels like the old Atari joystick, but it sounds like it was designed by lawyers to be legally. Exactly. That's exactly what I was tr trying to say. I didn't say yeah. it very well, but exactly. That's, yeah. I'm sure that's the case. I've got two of those things and they're pretty rare. I'm going to say relatively rare, yeah. uh, as rare as these things will get maybe, but ugliest sin and the most useless joysticks um, <laughs> that you could ever, but they're a nice collection collector's piece, I think to, to have. Uh, but of course, because one of the beautiful things about the DB9 um, connector, connector is it opened up a massive market of joystick options that were available to us um, mm -hmm. at 60. And you had the same, you know, benefit with your Atari 8-bit machine, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny because one of the things I've been doing now that I've got actual hardware up and running um, is I, I have a fairly decent collection of random joysticks. And I don't know which machines these were originally sold for or marketed for, but they work on all these things. Like yes. it could have been a Commodore yes. 64 specific yes. thing. Um, I've got a few really interesting ones and we, you and I both have a number of the Wico or Wico or. Yep. Yep. Wico, I'm going to say Wico. Will you say Wico? I say Wico. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, joysticks, you know, with the, the, the old school bat and then the red yeah. ball and all those types of things and the interchangeable ones. I have a few different ones of those. And, um, even like my Vectrex, the controller is a DB nine with four buttons. So, yes. um, yeah. I can, you can use that on the Atari too. Yeah, and very, very cool. So, and you were able to use paddle controllers on the Commodore 64 as well. 
I can still use my uh, my Atari paddles on yep. the Commodore 64 today quite nicely. And actually, Commodore, I forgot to mention this, Commodore actually made their own set of paddles as well, which mm. which also looked like a lawyer had an influence in making them look nothing <laughs> like the Atari ones. I have yeah. a pair of those as yeah. well, which are very rare. I don't think I've ever seen them. Um, no, I, I but know. these ones don't work. Um, they need to be cleaned, taken apart and cleaned, yeah. I think. But uh seems to be the case with all these things. Um stored in people's basements or whatever um <laughs> yeah because you normally you don't just get the computer you get a whole bunch of crap with it that's so right when that's you're right. buying these old uh that's you know right. estate sales or whatever um, yep. you generally get all of the things that are connected to it precisely and that's actually what kind of makes it fun is, is it's almost what's in the box that yeah that, that it, it, it like i you know we could do an episode podcast episode on our sort of barn find uh experiences <laughs> so one thing that we didn't talk about or at least mm -hmm. not in any depth was the fact that the Commodore 64 has a cartridge slot mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. there was cartridges available and they were yep. made by a lot of different companies. Even Atari made games for the Commodore. Right. And I recently came across in my cartridge collection. Again, I don't know where I got this from. I probably just mm -hmm. got a box of cartridges at a garage sale or something. And yes, in amongst all the Atari cartridges, there was a Commodore 64 cartridge that I have, which I'm yes. going to give to you next time we see each other. Nice. And, um, and it's like for screen copying, it's like a screen capture. It actually has a button on the cartridge that you press to capture the screen. That's wicked. I can't wait to try that out. Yeah. Um, for sure. Well, talking about cartridges is actually, so we're, we saved sort of the, the, you know, hard to believe we can talk for, you know, almost an hour about the Commodore 64 and not talk about games because yeah. the, the, one of the reasons why this thing sold 20 million units or whatever is because or probably the main reason it's because of the software library that it had. And they're such a massive uh, collection of games. And you would, you would argue that, uh, you know, I don't know what percentage of games you know, that people played were actually purchased by said person, but the percentage of that was actually pretty low. Piracy was obviously, um, I believe piracy, well, this is like, you know, Captain Obvious, but yeah. I think piracy is largely responsible for the popularity of the computer itself. I mean, I can, I probably sold a dozen of these to friends just because of the piracy, just because we knew we could copy the games back in the day. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, Early on, it, it wasn't the reason you bought it. But then when you realize yep. that, well, hey, well, Dave has 50 floppies full of games. Yep. Um, yep. It's it's pretty compelling to just like, well, uh, now I'm going to have 50 floppies full of games. I just have to buy a bunch of floppy disks. Yeah. It, I mean, you would have disk copy parties and gatherings and get togethers. And it, mm -hmm. it was just a, you'd, you'd have multiple disk drives connected to each other. And there was software that was used to copy games and, uh, like specialty software that stripped the copy protection or, you know, had some take, use some fancy techniques to copy the discs faster than, you know, typical and stuff like that. One thing I came across very recently was uh, a YouTube tutorial by someone that one of the people behind FujiNet and he, he did something really cool that I used to love doing. And that's making your own game disc menu. It's like your mixtape mm. of your favorite games, Neat. right? Neat. And, you know, all the software is still out there and you can basically just, you you know, you load each thing and you create like a, almost like a, like a bat file, like a batch file that will boot up on your computer and give you a menu and you customize the menu. And that used to be kind of a fun thing to do is make your own menu. Here's like all my favorite games on one floppy, you know, kind of thing. Absolutely. And 
and you end up like you talk about the stuff that comes in the boxes um yeah like that like of these collections that you get you get people's floppy disk collections and you see all kinds of different examples of what you just said and i remember doing some of that too as a kid it was very cool one mm-hmm. of the things that that, that on the I, again probably similar stuff on the atari but um w- what you would do when you would mount a floppy disk in the on in your 1541 is you would load the directory it was called the directory of the disk yeah so there was a command for doing that and load dollar sign comma eight and yeah. then you list the directory and you could what people would do is you could actually fill like so the directory that would list all the files on, on the floppy disk but you could create like mock file names and things like that to to make the directory the, the presentation the actual look of the directory like to include like character graphics so right like so just to make the you'd have your actual listing maybe in the middle but you'd have all these fancy you know graphical characters around it so it just made the listing look look kind of fun and cool so a lot, like, i remember doing a lot of that too early early ascii hacking yeah that's exactly what it was actually and and like you know again a, a rainy day project one day is to, I, I have probably three or four uh, collections from random people that like flop. I've got their floppy collections basically because they came in the box that we talked about before. So I've got hundreds of, you know, random people's floppy disks. um, Probably some tax returns and stuff in there. If you never know. And (laughs) it's, but it's, I mean, to me, you know, it's, it's fun to just mount a disk and to see what's on it. Right. And, you know, this is how people experience that. And I know people, um, that maybe even listening to this podcast, one of my, actually, it's one of my favorite, um, podcasters, uh, of all time is Rob Flack O'Hara. If Rob's listening to this, um, I remember Rob mentioning that he's actually catalog. He's got all of his, I don't know if he's kept all of his old floppies, if he still has them, but he's archived them all to disc images basically, because wow. it's not about having the games themselves, but it's also about remembering the actual disc that you had with your listing on it. And, mm-hmm. and, and you've got, you know, you have this disc that had these four games on it and that's part of the experience. And that's part of the memory. And I, I think it's super cool that he preserved uh, and I'm sure others, you know, have preserved their own collections, which is, which is really, really neat. I keep waiting to to come across uh, an Atari game ROM uh, for the 8-bit computer that's been cracked by me because I used to go in and yeah. edit. <laughs> yes, yes. Somebody else would crack yes. it. I, I didn't know of how course. to do that when I was 10 or whatever, <laughs> but I knew how to run the software to actually edit the cracked by name. So Yes, yes. And I'm yes, sure there's yes. there's some of that out there on the internet somewhere. I just haven't found it yet, but... Now that's, that's, it's exactly because you had your disc sector editors too, right? That's you right. Actually yeah. go in and you change the bits, change the data. Yeah. And of course yeah. you, your friends would have been, you know, your, your less technical friends would have been blown away by, by that. Right. See yeah. how you do that. I mean, I, I, used prefer- an, I used an alias, but I'm not, right. not going to share it on this podcast, but <laughs> you don't, yeah, you don't want to, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get in trouble yeah. uh, after all these, after all these years. So, so maybe I'll, I'll just share a little bit about Again, we better wrap this up pretty soon, but talk about uh, the games that I used to play back in the day, like that were my favorites mm-hmm. um, and just some of the, the brief personal memories of those games. And again, we could go on and on and on, but um, the very first game I ever played was Lemonade Stand, John, just like you, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny, <laughs> but in terms of um, games that I remember, and I remember this is why I still have my tape drive. So my options were limited. A friend of mine had load runner on cartridge so i borrowed his load runner of course and that was my first exposure to load runner still one of my favorite games to this day i mentioned that in every episode it's like seinfeld mentioning superman <laughs> right it's the same thing um and 
the, the other games, uh, I, I guess I was a fan of the platformer games back then, because once I got my disk drive, one of the first games that I really played a ton of was Jumpman. I think we probably talked a little bit about Jumpman in the past. There's a great Atari 8-bit version of Jumpman as well, but it's still mm-hmm. a fun one just to pick up. And the graphics are simple, yeah. um, but it's it's such a great puzzle game, a puzzle platform type of a game. And it's, it's, it's just iconic uh, in my mind. Um, as uh, the other games that uh, I remember very much of that I loved a lot were the Epics uh, game series, your winter games, your summer games, your mm-hmm. California games, your world games. I mean, those I actually would put those those titles as being the best ever made on the platform, at least in my opinion. I mean, they were such, I would say, almost revolutionary at the time, sort of that mini game concept with all these little sports that you could play individually or compete with your friends and practice just the design of those games not only the 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 playability of them but the look and the grab the graphics the look and feel the music you know it, how it, it, it's funny because every every console has its sort of iconic game studio you yes. know like on the atari was it was activision yes. and their bright colors their you know really rich gameplay and stuff like that on the commodore definitely had to be epics um, I would say so. To me, yeah. it's it's like it just speaks quality when I hear that name. Yeah. Um, it it even though I you know the company didn't last you know forever and I and, and but they ended up going in a few different directions after all that. But uh, Thanks, imagine, piracy. yeah. Well, but I think they probably sold a lot though. I mean, that's one of yeah. the games that I bought was I remember convincing my mom um, in Edmonton, the West Edmonton Mall. Uh, which was the big was a big deal back you know in that day to go to West Edmonton Mall, yeah. Uh, to buy me uh, summer games, it was brand new. It was around the time of the '84 Olympics. That's they sort of timed it for that. Um, and I remember that I remember opening the box, the smell of the box, <laughs> like reading. Like I just remember, like it was yesterday, and it was so exciting because I I, I I'd only seen this game in magazines, right? Um, yeah. And to have this in my hand. Um, for me to have to wait three or four days to get back home to be able to actually play it was just like it was an eternity. Oh, I know you sort of like stare at the floppy and just absolutely, absolutely. wish wish it into your brain so that you don't have to totally, totally. Have to wait. But I mean, those were that was in hindsight, boy, that was a beautiful thing, right? Um, to yeah. to to have that memory. But yeah, those games were were just uh, iconic, and they're still so good. Um, to go back, like Winter Games. I pick it up like, you know, I, I can't play winter games in the summer or, or vice versa. Um, I have to, for me, I just can't do that. But I love, you know, winter games is so, so well done in particular. But uh, yeah, love the epics, uh, the epics titles. And I could go, I, I loved um, some of the the sports titles, uh, other sports titles. There was a baseball game called, I think it was on field baseball. And then there was on court tennis. I think they were all both made by the same company whose name escapes me right now. Um, it's going to be obvious once I finish this, but GameStar, I think they were called GameStar. Mm. And anyway, th- those titles, they they developed those for all the 8-bit platforms as well. And those are really, I, I put a lot of hours into those games, um, just, a, just a whole lot of fun. But the funny thing is, you know, I could list, you know, I don't know how many, a few dozen games that I really, really remember from back then. The library of software is so massive. Like there's so many games that, you know, you know, person X would say, this was my favorite game, like, like on the 64 and, and, and like played it, you know, my whole childhood. 
that I've never even heard of, even to this day. I've still never played it, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's to have the catalog to be so massive and to be able to go and explore those games even today, which I know you and I have talked about in the past. That's mm-hmm. that's really really fun, uh, a fun thing to do. It's a good way to kill some time. Yeah, I recently. I mean, we we talked about it before. I think the Atari library, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how you count, you know, mm-hmm. is somewhere for the Atari eight bit computer is somewhere between six and ten thousand titles, yes. and I think your library is double that. I would say it, it it may be. I mean, the numbers are they vary so, so yeah, much. they're all over the map, but. So but you have it, you have all the different international versions of everything. Exactly. The, exactly. The NTSC and PAL versions of things and like all like yeah, exactly. All and, the and, variants. And, and and there are even variants of like there were apparently um like I don't know if they're enhanced, but maybe improved. I don't know, versions of the, the Epics game series that were released later on too, mm-hmm. uh, that I've never even played before they have slightly different names um the games i think is one of them like there's some and i don't know if there were europe european releases or not but i've still never checked checked those out but they're they're, yeah there's just and then of course there's a nice segue into you know what's happening today in the commodore 64 space um Mm -hmm. there are it's probably amongst the 8-bit platforms. We've talked about the fact that there are still new games being developed really for all these platforms to this day. The community is vibrant still, um, Mm -hmm. maybe even more vibrant than it would have been 20 years ago because all the people our age with an interest in this stuff are probably entering into retirement or have a little more time and money on their hands and they can can waste time because Lord knows you're not getting rich developing an 8-bit you know, <laughs> Commodore game or whatever these days, you're, you're, you're just not, you might make a couple thousand bucks, but you're putting in hundreds and hundreds of hours and working for minimum wage. So you're obviously doing it for the passion of doing it, mm-hmm. but, but there, there are just some incredible titles, like some of the best games ever released for, for the Commodore 64 are being developed even t- to this day. Um, I'll mention a couple of them. Uh, one and and this was this this one game's probably five six seven years old now, but there's a game called Sam's Journey, which is arguably one of the best games ever made for the Commodore sixty four, like legitimately because largely because of its smooth scrolling techniques. Um, it's a platform game. You'd think of it similar to a Mario style platformer game. It's extremely cinematic. The sound, like the intro screens, the like the story. It's uh, it's amazing game. Um, the only downside to that game is that it's only uh, if you're talking about original hardware, it only works on PAL machines. It, it's not there isn't there. I think there is an NTSC version, but it's buggy and it's not intended to be run on an NTSC machine. So for me, that takes a little bit of the luster out of the game. It's why I probably haven't played it at all or that much. Uh, of course, it plays great in emulation, so that's how right. most people will experience it anyway. But and it's mm-hmm. but it's it's a, it's an engineering masterpiece again on the sixty four, um, Sam's journey. It's really really amazing. Um, there's also a developer um, by the name of Sarah Jane Avery, who has still develops games to this day. Uh, recently released uh, uh, a, a new game called so one of her big games called Zeta Wing. Um, so she recently released uh, a, su- a successor to Zeta Wing called Zeta Wing 2, which is a shoot 'em up game, like a, a scrolling, uh, a, a vertical or horizontal, no, vertical shooter <laughs> in the lines of like a, 
you know, a Galaga style game, but with like heavy scrolling and and really beautiful soundtrack and some parallax effects. It's really, really amazing. Like, like talk about piece of art, I, I think, yeah. with these games. Um, there's a game called Briley Witch Chronicles, which is a, a Japanese-inspired role-playing game for the Commodore 64. Uh, that comes with like a really deep manual. It's it, like it's considered to be one of the best games ever made as well for for the platform. And these are all games that Sarah Jane has released for this platform in the last three or four years. So uh, she deserves like 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 nothing but support. Like I buy all these games. Um, just like I don't like I don't play games that much, <laughs> but <laughs> I buy them all just to just to support um the developers like mm -hmm. like just like you're talking about between five ten fifteen bucks at the most for these games like briley witch chronicles i think was like a 10 or 15 dollar purchase but like and again i've never even played it like to any degree but i just yeah um it's a rainy day thing for one day but just beautiful amazing uh amazing stuff um there's one maybe one last uh, game to talk about or developer to talk about um, there's a guy named uh, Antonio Savona who has developed some amazing games uh, for the 64. The most recent one's called A Pig Quest. A Pig Quest, awesome game, like a platformer game, beautiful high-res graphics. Um, uh, there's a, they released the soundtrack in MP3 format to go along with the game that you buy, like really taking it to the next level, cinematic stuff. Like Anyway, it, it goes on and on. Um, just so many great uh, titles being developed uh, to this day. So that it's just in an attempt to stay ahead of the Atari 8-bit, right? We just want to have more games than you guys, right? That's the yeah. whole point. <laughs> it's, it's funny because I have also come across a whole bunch of, we were talking about those demos earlier. There's a bunch of Commodore versus Atari and Atari versus Commodore demos yep. where they're basically just, you know, trying to crap on each other. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and and that's cool, right? I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, it's all in good fun. It's all in good fun. Some people take it probably a little bit too serious, uh, yeah, and more serious than other people do. But um, could go on and on. I mean, I didn't even talk about like pr programming and like other than the game playing, there was a fair amount of programming that went on. I think we'll save the programming stuff for a future talks. I think that really deserves its own its own podcast. Um, I I, I really do. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe I'll wind up my side of the story by just talking about how I got out of the 64 and how the 64 stuff sort of came to an end, at least temporarily mm -hmm. um, for me. Um, so what's amazing to me is that the production of the 64 ended in 1994, which is, you know, that's a long run. That um, is a, yeah. I remember that. I remember like, I remember reading somewhere that they were winding it down. I'm like, I thought they wound that down a long time ago. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, 94, I still kind of remember like, you know, it wasn't that long ago, but, um, but yeah, exactly. But the thing about, um, you know, or the way that I got out of it, I, I remember if you will remember very well when the Atari ST and the Amiga um, mm -hmm. came out, I think around 80, was it 85? I think I want to say and 85 or 86. Yeah. Right. In that rate, in that range. Yeah. Right. So, so those were the real successors, at least in my view, to the 60, to the 8-bit machines, mm -hmm. um, these 16-bit machines. Because I, I took one look at Compute Magazine and said, okay, my computer's a piece of crap. <laughs> like, basically, yeah. I remember seeing, you know, the Amiga bouncing ball demo or whatever it was, or seeing, like, the, the Atari ST's, like, sound capabilities and how it was basically, these things were being shown to us. And I thought, 
I can't afford one of those. Um, there's no way I'm ever going to have one of those machines, probably. Um, so my computer's just garbage, and I was kind of sad about it. Um, it's funny how you know that whole thing goes. Um, how you how all of a sudden things look dated, and um, even with my old original Xbox, we're going back like like less than ten years ago. I just got rid of that thinking it was old junk, but I would love to have that to the, to, to have that back right now. Um, I, I mean. I got out of my stuff because I moved across the country and I had to basically right. downsize to a duffel bag. And yes. yes. And I, you know, I didn't want to. Um, and then when I when I got to the West Coast, um, where I am now, um, later on, I eventually did get an Atari ST, but for a completely different reason. And that was yes. because it was uh sold at music stores as a right. music creation computer because right. right. the Atari ST had a MIDI port on it, mm-hmm. which was a first for a home computer system. Yeah. And I remember specifically Long and McQuaid had a very decent, like kind of like a payment layaway plan. Yes. So you could yes. pay a small amount of money per month and, and, and oh, that makes it easy. That yeah. makes it, and, and, and maybe, well, you, you know, and I joke kind of half joke that I threw my 64 in the garbage, um, but I definitely lost a bit of interest in it. And part of that had to do with, because I, I would have been transitioning into like, you know, I had a job. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, you're maybe having a little bit more of a social life. Um, you had adult responsibilities. You're getting into, you're starting to get into that realm. And I remember, um, my dad had a program. This would have been, I don't know, 80 or late nineties, I guess, or sorry, late eighties, maybe it was yeah. 89, maybe it was 89. I still holding, was I still, I had my 128 then because it replaced the 64 with the 128 in like 85, 86. I think I still had the 128. I can't remember, but it was when just collecting dust anyway, most likely. But through my dad's work, he had a program where they could finance uh, basically a PC compatible, like an XT, like a like an 8086 or whatever it would have been, a compatible machine, which were very expensive back in those days, but they were able to finance them, all that. So I needed one for college. So we got one of those. And then I remember taking all my Commodore stuff. I remember I sold it to someone, taking it all, placing it on the stairs in my house. Um, and someone came and picked it up and, and that was it. And that would have been 89. It's funny how I haven't thought about that moment until right now. And I, I completely, the, the, the story about how I got rid of that machine, I, I couldn't remember it until it just came back to me. Mm. But I can remember and and not really feeling emotional about it or anything like that. It was really just getting rid of something and, and who knows what we even... Anyway, all the that's where my mouse, my joysticks, everything would have just been put in a box and given given away. The irony so, is now you're that guy showing up to pick up that that's box. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Except I'm a heck of a lot older um, yeah. now. And but um, but yeah, you're totally right. Uh, you're totally right. So, but but then um, and and what and just to finish this, the very last thing I'll say, uh, we didn't talk about. Um, some of the modern um i guess replicas of the commodore 64 but Mm -hmm. and that's another that's another episode as well but it was when i discovered um the c64 mini which we talked about which Mm -hmm. is just a little emulation box i know that there's nothing special we should do a whole episode on the flashback units yeah because i I think we have enough material now to talk about that between the two of us we own like every single one of them almost too yeah yeah um, but it was, it was seeing that device and, and it just spawned that, that it regenerated my interest in the Commodore 64. I, I asked for one for Christmas a few years ago 
And that's what got me going down the rabbit hole. And I wouldn't be doing this right now if it wasn't for that purchase, probably. And and you can um, still get them. They're on Amazon for like 68 bucks. Yeah. 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 And on Marketplace for even cheaper than that. Um, oh, I strongly yeah. recommend picking one. In fact, I'm going to tell you this right now that I've got one with your name on it because you should oh. have one in your collection. So, all right. Yeah. Like you should have one. Um, whether you like it or not, <laughs> you know, you should have one because uh, it's, it's a nice piece. It's one of the best done mini consoles, in my opinion. So I, I'm still disappointed, though, that the keyboard isn't actually a keyboard. <laughs> well, your 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 job's going to be to make it functional. Um, so <laughs> can you imagine how many hours that would take? But yeah, uh, not for someone like you. Exactly. Well, on that note, let's uh, close, have some clothing, 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 closing thoughts uh, uh, for this episode. And we're going to talk about uh, what I talked about on the last episode, which was getting my Atari 8-bit online thanks to a Fujinet. I received my Fujinet. I bought one from Spain through Tindy.com and I got it. I plugged it in and it just worked. Um, I have to say it if nothing gets you excited about an old 8-bit console, the Fujinet is probably the ultimate way to get giddy about it again. Because once I figured out how it all works and and the had my uh, SD card set up properly for it, um, it opens up a whole world of things. One of the neat things that it does is it emulates pretty much every peripheral that you can imagine uh, on the Atari. They they make a version for it for the Apple. They make a version for it for um, I, th- I think some other consoles as well, and uh, or computers as well. And the one I bought wasn't the typical FujiNet that p- people get, and that's the one that looks like a little expansion uh, cartridge almost that plugs into the back. I got one that's just a, a circuit board, and and it the magic about the one in from Spain is that it has this little um, DB9 connector for adapting to different devices. So if you wanted to get a ColecoVision Atom connected or an Apple II, you could use that. And you just either make or buy the DB9 connector for and wire it specifically for your your device. I've almost bought the proper one because I do have, I think, four or five Atari computers. (laughs) I just tested them all the other day and two of the four work. Right. So, uh, and one of them isn't, working the greatest the colors are off so again rabbit hole if nothing else they're, they're parts machines yeah. um, my 800 xl works flawlessly and i gotta say having the fujinet i have a usb power supply now so it's running off a, a charging block flawlessly i have a proper um uh composite out for it and it looks great on on an lcd or, or crt and what FujiNet really brings is the ability to access either your an SD card full of stuff um, or over your local network. You can have a server running, basically just a folder on a computer that has uh, files on it. And then also the ability to um, connect to the internet and connect to other computers running the FujiNet software. And there's been a couple really interesting developments that people have created. Someone has created a way to play online multiplayer games over the FujiNet. Right now it's kind of limited, but you can actually play five card stud against other people uh, on their Ataris using the FujiNet software. And um, there's ways to browse the internet. 
There's a bunch of different applications for things like the weather. There's even like a, an ISS tracking mm -hmm. uh, mapping software that will show you where the, the space station is current to your relative location. And it'll track it over time and show you where it is in beautiful 8-bit graphics. Um, the, the, the thing that I really like is being able to go and see some of these other repositories that are out there. I haven't quite had time to delve into connecting to another BBS, but I do have all the BBS software now and it's all working beautifully. The big thing for me was figuring out how the FujiNet actually works with things like multiple drive, multiple floppy uh, games and apps. So the, the main one that I wanted to get working was the print shop from Broderbund Software. <laughs> and that was the original, you know, uh, poster, banner, greeting card, making software from back in the day. And it's a multi-disc um, app. And one of the neat things about the FujiNet that I figured out is that uh, you basically have up to, I think, five or eight virtual drives that you can load with different software. And there's a button on the FujiNet, you press it, and it uses the software automated voice or mouth, I guess, Sam, to actually speak which drive is connected. So mm -hmm. you you load up print shop and it'll say, okay, insert disc two to make your banner or your poster or whatever. And uh, then you press the button and it says disc two connected or something along those lines. It's just kind of cool that it's it's sort of running in the background and it speaks it over the speaker and it's it's very cool and it works beautifully. The okay. the really neat thing about the FujiNet though is I have the ability to emulate a printer, any printer I want. So uh, then with the print shop, I was able to make like banners and greeting cards and all these different things that looks like it's been printed on a dot matrix printer and it creates a PDF file that the FujiNet stores locally on your SD card. You have the ability then, because the FujiNet is essentially a Wi-Fi network appliance on your home network, on any modern computer or your phone, you can just browse to the IP address of the FujiNet and you get this beautiful menu of all the different configuration options. You can see which drives are loaded currently. You can also download your PDF that you just printed in the print shop from this web interface. And it's a, it's just, it's magical to me that you can emulate either a 1020 plotter like I used to have as a kid, or you can emulate any doc matrix printer that you want, and it'll actually replicate that printout experience in PDF format. So it's just very cool. Incredible. Well, um, watch your email for a few requests from me for some print shop <laughs> greeting card PDFs, because <laughs> I, I, I mean, again, that's another episode topic. We could talk about the print shop <laughs> yeah. or maybe desktop publishing or, or whatever that would have been called, like whatever that yeah. neat genre would have been back then. But, yeah. but man, like I, I distinctly remember making those greeting cards for my parents uh, and grandparents and all that. But um, the, the neat thing about what, first of all, that's the device sounds like it's an absolute game changer. Um, you cannot have an Atari 8-bit computer and not have that device, it sounds like, just the ultimate device. There's nothing like that. Like we talked about there being a version being developed for other platforms, or for six, including the 64, but uh, being able to, I've been trying to emulate a printer and get a PDF output from, I've actually tried to do that mm -hmm. before, like print shop specifically, yeah. right? And I've been unsuccessful. I've tried um, using emulation mostly, not using yeah. any, anyway, the fact that you can do that, but how can you live without 
um, this device now. <laughs> you can't, right? Well, I know. That's why I've been tempted to buy a second one, just so yeah. I have the the more aesthetically pleasing one, but mm -hmm. also just a backup where I can actually have multiple computers running at the same time. Because yeah. the other interesting thing is the networking opportunities. Yes. Because yes. it can emulate any modem, it can emulate any printer, um, and pretty much any of the peripherals that you would have had back in the day. Um, and it's just such an interesting project. It, it's it's one thing to come up with the idea to build something like this, <laughs> but to actually do it is even more amazing. Like well, and it, it has beautiful graphics. Like when you boot up your Atari, yeah. it actually almost immediately goes right into the Fujinet. And the, the loading logo is even interesting and, and cool and, right. and awesome. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's a it's a beautiful hybrid of really old technology and really new yeah. technology. Not, nothing makes me happier than these types of of of, of, of toys i guess or <laughs> yeah. uh, like but just the fact that we live in a time where the stuff exists i i feel it's one of the things that makes me the happiest is our devices like these and i can't wait for the 64 version because it sounds like uh something I absolutely need to get but i'm going to ask you this is sort of you know stepping away from the main topic but do you have like is there a uh any place that you know of that can repair your other Atari machines that aren't working? Or would you simply just keep them for parts? Or is it worth investigating or pursuing having one restored to perfection? Well, it, it's one of those things that it's how much time do you have? Because mm -hmm. these are all rabbit holes. Yeah. I One of my Ataris, the 130XE, uh, boots up. Everything works fine. The mm -hmm. colors are off though. And I, mm -hmm. I assume that just means it's a bad video chip. And I've, I've, I've very briefly looked through some of the forums to see about this. And it sounds like you can get replacement mm -hmm. uh, kits that will fix these things. So, yeah. and people are still making and burning these ROM yeah. chips and, and various other things. Uh, it's just narrowing it down. Um, yeah. It also might be something where you either donate or sell these devices to people that could fix them. Yeah. Um, that type of thing. I'm just happy. I have a couple that work and they work just yeah. fine. And, yeah. um, and it, it has been quite a magical, very deep rabbit hole of time wasting though. And I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, so I'm basically doing what I did when I was 10 all over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like groundhog but, day, but in I, a weird nerd. You're way. using your, your, not only the modern technology, but also your, you know, yeah. your enhanced smarts to, to yeah. do things differently. So you're, you're combining the old days with yeah. modern times, right? Yeah. I, I think that's, I think it's beautiful, but I know what you mean. It's like, this is what I was doing uh, <laughs> yeah, way, way back in the day, but well, I, I can't wait to see it. Um, and I'll, but I also think that um, you should, I love the notion of having multiple fully working machines. So you say you've yeah. got two that work pretty well, then, then that's, then that's good. But I, I know that um, it's, again, it's a rabbit hole um, in, if you have the ability to diagnose and fix these things yourself, then it's your time. Otherwise I'm sure there's a guy somewhere who you could ship the board to. Um, yeah. And, and it, it could just be a case of opening it up and realizing, oh, it's just dirty or corroded. And yeah, just clean that's it right. Up. Like right. you won't know until you open it up. I, I did open up one of my Atari 2600s the other day to see, and inside is practically just corrosion city. So yes. I don't know yeah. if that one's ever going to come back, but. Got it. Got um, it. Anyways, I think uh, at that 
point, this is probably our longest episode, <laughs> um, but almost an hour and a half now. Um, so we're going to wrap this up. Uh, once again, I am John. I'm Dave. And you can find us at the8bitfiles.com. Uh, we are on Twitter. We are on um, YouTube. Uh, we are on the internet, the8bitfiles.com. Uh, we're going to be setting up a Instagram and threads account soon as well. And we're going to start sharing some of our stuff there as well. And um, yeah, we'd love to hear if you have any comments or feedback about our show, any topics you want us to talk about, anything that we've already talked about that you want a deeper dive on. We'd love to hear it. And uh, again, um, thanks for listening. Make sure you like and subscribe and all the good things that you know what to do. Um, signing off for now. Take care. It's John. And Dave. See you guys soon.